Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey folks, I have an exciting announcement to kick off today's show. I've just posted the first full episode in my new series, This Week in Irish History. This new podcast will be looking at some of the most intriguing stories from our past. The first show is about the execution of a famous highwayman who was strung up in 1750 and that's already available. So subscribe to This Week in Irish History in iTunes or wherever you get podcasts and you'll find that there. Coming episodes will be covering battles, sieges, rebellions and scandals from the past thousand years of our history. As I say, the first episode was launched on October 1st and it'll be out each and every Monday from now on. So don't miss out and subscribe to This Week in Irish History. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is... The Forgotten Famine of 1847-48 to Many histories of the Great Famine refer to it as a famine of 1847. Now it is true that Black 47 was one of the years of greatest suffering and the famine did start to ease in some parts of the island in the following years. However, as you are about to hear in this show, the famine was far from over in 1847. This episode focuses in on one area, Clifton in County Galway, where the famine in 1848 was arguably even worse than it had been in Black 47. This episode also looks at who was responsible, how the British government created the illusion the famine was nearing an end, and why they would do this. We will also look at the struggle for survival in Clifton, where people were pushed to the extremes and indeed far beyond into the realms of what is the greatest of human taboos, cannibalism. This podcast took an awful lot of research with countless resources, newspapers, archives, letters, academic journals and British parliamentary papers among the various sources that I used. But I want to mention one book in particular which was central to my research and this is Kathleen Villiers-Tools' excellent study of the famine in Connemara called Patient Endurance. Also, a big thanks to listener and nutritionist Janet Johnson in Kentucky for her expert advice on diet and the effects of famine. 
The days and days of research required to make this show are only possible through the support of listeners who have become patrons. For their support, they receive early access to the show, episode guides which list the sources I used and have the text of each episode in them, bonus podcasts, and if I'm doing anything new, I try and consult patrons as far as is possible. So, for example, we kicked around ideas for my new upcoming podcast series over on Patreon before I announced it. In fact, the title This Week in Irish History came from a listener on Patreon. You can become a patron really easily. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Irish podcast. Each and every patron also gets a personal thank you in the show. And this week I want to thank Alex Allen, Jim McGuire, Alex Soliloquy, Jessica Reed, Ali McGuess, Michael Grow, Kathy Chapman, Mary Gill, Tom Gearn, Tom Meldrum and William J. Murphy. Thanks folks, your support means so much. It's no exaggeration to say that an episode like this one simply wouldn't be possible without you. Now to the show at hand. We begin in Dublin in 1847 with the arrival of a very important person in the city. In early October 1847, a well-dressed man disembarked in the port of Kingstown outside Dublin, his long journey nearing an end. From Kingstown, he took a train up the coast, alighting in Monkstown, a few miles outside the city, where he made his way to the Salt Hill Hotel, one of Victorian Dublin's finer establishments. Opened in the 1830s, this was one of the more upmarket hotels, where the Irish aristocracy were known to break journeys when they were returning to their Irish estates from England. A 19th century travel guide reviewed the Salt Hill Hotel in the following terms. The salubrity of Salt Hill Hotel is well known and appreciated as the beautiful villas in its immediate vicinity testify. To those who value pure air, lovely marine views, mountain scenery, a quiet, comfortable and luxurious home combined with good cuisine, we strongly recommend a stay at the Salt Hill Hotel. Here, the newly arrived Englishman would enjoy the best Victorian Dublin had to offer. He could enjoy his morning coffee in the large tea room which overlooked the hotel gardens and woodland and then Dublin Bay beyond. He would have few encounters with those struggling as another winter of starvation approached in Ireland. Perhaps the only intrusion on his serene view in October 1847 was the stream of ships leaving Dublin Bay carrying hundreds of desperate famine refugees. During his stay, this Englishman, when he left the hotel, never ventured too far. He was in Ireland to work, and over the course of his visit he attended meetings in Dublin Castle, where the British administration was based, and enjoyed working dinners in the Viceregal Lodge in the Phoenix Park, the residence of the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Aside from what were, at most, passing glimpses of starving people from his carriage window, the famine was far removed from his direct experiences. However, the same could not be said for the work that brought him across the Irish Sea. Indeed, he, as much as any individual could, was shaping how the Great Famine developed. This English visitor was none other than Charles Edward Trevelyan, and he had come to Ireland at what was a critical juncture to oversee the implementation of the latest British government policy on famine relief. Trevelyan is viewed in Ireland today in an almost satanic light, which actually obscures the role he played during the Great Famine. He was neither a politician nor an Irish landlord, but in fact a civil servant, but a very powerful and influential one at that. 
As Assistant Secretary in the Treasury, he wielded huge influence over famine relief policies in Ireland. He, along with his superior, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Wood, had been among the most vociferous advocates of free market solutions to the Great Famine. They had cast aside traditional, and it should be said effective, famine relief measures in favour of untried and untested free market economics. The results of these, as we have seen in previous episodes, were disastrous. Indeed, they had been scrapped in early 1847 and replaced by soup kitchens. However, in the spring and summer of 1847, the British government, keen to return to a policy of minimal intervention, had drawn up a new plan. In a nutshell, this policy was designed to extricate the British government from the whole business of famine relief in Ireland. Much in the way that one would close down a shop that was struggling to make money, they decided they were going to call time on the Great Famine, to say it was more or less over. This would allow them to massively scale back on what they were spending on famine relief in Ireland. To this end, soup kitchens, upon which millions depended, were set to close in September 1847, as were the fever hospitals being run by the government. After this, they argued that Ireland's 130 poor law unions, essentially local welfare organisations, would be able to handle any remaining people who still needed aid. Given these poor law unions were funded by poor rates, local taxes collected in each union in Ireland, the British government would be no longer involved to the same extent as they had been. Trevelyan and Wood did accept there were some exceptions where the local poor law unions would struggle to handle the last remnants of the Great Famine as they saw it. So, of the 130 unions across Ireland, they earmarked 22 along the west coast as distressed. These distressed unions would be given external aid from the government but only when the poor law system could no longer fund relief. They had to completely exhaust local resources first. Now this might have worked, except for one major hitch. That is, the Great Famine was clearly not over, or even near coming to an end in late 1847 or early 1848. Nevertheless, the government were determined to push ahead with their proposals, and Lord John Russell, the Prime Minister of the day, dispatched Charles Trevelyan to Ireland to liaise with officials in Dublin about how their plans would work. In the city, Trevelyan had numerous meetings with various officials from the Lord Lieutenant, the Earl of Clarendon, to poor law officials who now had a huge responsibility given they were tasked with overseeing a system charged with all famine relief. In conjunction with Charles Trevelyan, these officials bulked up the poor law apparatus, creating 22 poor law inspectors one for each union described as distressed, where the government accepted they would have to intervene. These inspectors would closely monitor events in these areas, overseeing the distribution of aid and the collection of poor rates. However, measures like this could not alter the root of the problem facing Ireland. No matter what the government desired, the Great Famine was not over, and the poor law system, no matter what was done to it, could not feed all the people who previously had been receiving rations in soup kitchens. However, this was no surprise to Charles Trevelyan when he arrived in Ireland. Indeed, long before he ever set foot in the country, he, along with most senior British government figures, were well aware that the famine was not coming to an end. Their claims that it had been were developed earlier in the year and based on two assumptions, neither of which had materialised. The first of these anticipated 1847 would see Irish harvests return to somewhere near normality 
while the second argued that the massive increase in food imports over the previous year would bring the appalling hunger to an end. Firstly, the notion that Ireland would see anything close to a normal harvest in 1847 was never anything other than an illusion. While the last remnants of what would be a very poor harvest were being gathered when Charles Trevelyan arrived in Dublin, this had been predicted by many since the start of the year. Successful harvests are based on work over the course of at least nine months, and in the crucial winter and early spring of 1847, farm labourers, the engine of the rural economy, hadn't been working on the land, but instead had been toiling on the government public works scheme, which was the only way they could earn money to survive. It was inevitable, therefore, that the harvest would be poor. And it was. The second issue was less clear-cut, and this related to the scale of imports into Ireland in 1847. The terrible starvation of 1846 had been caused by chronic food shortages. The government had imported very little food, while at the same time, following their free market principles, they allowed merchants to export that year's harvest. The situation was different in 1847. While exports had continued, vast quantities of cheap grain began to arrive in Irish ports. In fact, through 1847, Ireland became a net importer of food, meaning more food arrived in Irish ports than left them. Naturally, the price of food fell dramatically. However, despite government claims, this was not reason enough to proclaim the Great Famine over. Most famines are not caused by a lack of food. Amartya Sen, the Indian academic, has pointed out that famines are frequently caused by an inability to access the food that is available rather than there being no food at all. And in Ireland from late 1847, this was clearly going to be the case. Even though there were large quantities of food available, this didn't mean the poor would be able to buy it, even if it was going to be cheap. It was, after all, the property of private merchants and they certainly were not going to give it out for free and the poor had no money whatsoever to buy it. There was also a hidden knock-on effect to these imports. The drop in the price of food hit Irish farmers who grew oats and other grains hard and plunged them into great financial difficulty. This undermined the entire basis of the new plan Trevelyan had arrived in Dublin to implement. This plan argued that poor rates, the local taxes that funded poor law unions, would be enough to pay for famine relief if any cases of starvation persisted in the following winter. But the same farmers that saw their incomes dwindle after the arrival of cheap grains in Ireland were the very people expected to pay this tax. Ireland in late 1847 was now in a catch-22. High food prices on the one hand meant starvation, however low food prices now meant farmers couldn't pay poor rates to fund famine relief through their local poor law unions. Outside intervention from the British government was clearly needed, however this was not going to happen. Charles Trevelyan had after all arrived in Dublin to ensure nearly all relief would be carried by the poor law unions. That said, Trevelyan seems to have been momentarily rattled by the situation presented to him by officials in Ireland. In early October, while still in the Salt Hill Hotel outside Dublin, he penned a letter to the Times of London. A major church collection for Irish famine relief was being organised across Britain on October 17th and Trevelyan's letter asked for generosity from the British public, saying of the Irish, They will perish by thousands this year if they are not relieved. In an accompanying letter in the Times, one of Ireland's poor law commissioners, John Burgoyne, was even more direct. 
Distress still hangs over that country. It is not the ordinary distress of a lowering of the people from one of luxury or comfort, but it is reducing them from the lowest state that can support life to one without means even to do that. This was a major admission. Trevelyan was publicly stating he did not believe the new strategy could work. He was saying thousands would die. This admission outraged the Earl of Clarendon, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, who rebuked Trevelyan for making such a revealing and candid statement. However, Clarendon need not have been too concerned. Trevelyan would not raise whatever misgivings he had in public again after he returned to England in the middle of October. No changes would be made to the government plan. Therefore, as the winter of 1847-48 to approached, all those who could not afford to buy food would need relief and the only place that they could now get it was their local poor law union, and these unions, as we have seen, were in a very shaky financial position. The British government, however, were largely unconcerned. Indeed, as Christmas 1847 approached, they were effectively doubling down by preparing a major defence of their position. In the last few months of the year, after his return from Ireland, Trevelyan wrote a lengthy article called The Irish Crisis first published anonymously in the Edinburgh Review in January 1848 and later in a book form under his own name. This not only defended government actions but referred to the famine as a past event, save a few minor exceptions. Indeed, when the Times newspaper published an early review of the article on December the 21st, 1847, they summarised it as The first attempt at a regular and comprehensive history of the terrible passage from which Ireland and this country have not entirely emerged. Saying Ireland was not entirely emerged from the Great Famine was a terrible misrepresentation of the situation on the ground. But Trevelyan's article was not just an error. This was in many ways a statement of intent from the British government. They had little or no interest in the famine from now on. This was clear from the Irish crisis because while Charles Trevelyan may have been the main author, several leading political figures in Ireland and England, including the Prime Minister, Lord John Russell, were all involved in the drafting of the document. While these people sat down to their dinners on Christmas Day, satisfied that their job was done, Ireland was facing another terrible winter, but now on its own. Next, we will travel west to the Poor Law Union of Clifton in Connemara, County Galway and get a feel for the place before we see exactly how the plans laid down by the British government were having a terrible effect on the ground in Ireland. Clifton is a very unusual town by Irish standards. While most towns in Ireland have roots stretching back to the 17th century if not long before, Clifton is a much more recent development. Indeed, in the early 19th century, it was nothing more than a rugged coast in Connemara overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. The nearest major town of consequence was Galway City, with the only settlements in the Connemara region being the occasional fishing village along the coast and the very occasional small town inland. Then, in 1804, much of western Connemara was inherited by John Darcy. Darcy was what is called an improving landlord, who wanted to transform the area. He envisaged opening up Connemara to trade with the wider world and he set about building an infrastructure to accommodate increased traffic. This saw the first major road built through the region. Darcy also planned a new port town with docks and warehouses for merchants and so it was the town of Clifton was born. 
Darcy's bold vision was not without some success. By 1841, the road penetrating through the vast wilderness of Connemara was completed, connecting Clifton with Galway, and the population of this fledgling town had grown to around 1,500 people. When the writer and famed gardener James Fraser visited prior to the onset of famine, he found several shops, churches of both Protestant and Catholic faiths, a courthouse, an inn, a distillery and a brewery. The newly constructed port enjoyed modest but not insignificant incomes, exporting around 1,000 tonnes of oats each year. However, perfunctory glances at maps or reading reports of Clifton like the one above failed to convey the truly isolated nature of the town. Clifton by the 1840s had emerged as the capital of Connemara, not necessarily because the town was cosmopolitan, but simply because it was the only settlement worthy of such a title. It was incredibly isolated and this isolation influenced how the famine unfolded there and how relief measures encountered major obstacles. The road that connected Clifton to the nearest major city, Galway, travelled through the plain of Connemara which lies between the Atlantic Ocean to the south and the Mam Turk and Twelve Pins mountain ranges to the north. James Fraser, when he made his trip through Connemara to Clifton, described the terrain as a a wild district which presents itself under every possible combination of heathy moor, bog, lake and mountain. Extensive, mossy plains and wild pastoral valleys, abounding in locks and streams, lie among the mountains. It was hardly any surprise then that the daily stagecoach from Clifton to Galway took eight hours to cover the 50-mile journey. This meant that Clifton was a round trip of two days from Galway and at least four from Dublin. Nevertheless, in spite of this isolation, Clifton was chosen as the administrative centre of the local Poor Law Union when it was established under the 1838 Poor Law. A workhouse was built in the town and while construction began in the early 1840s, it was only opened in March 1847 after encountering several problems. Next we will focus on how the Clifton Poor Law Union, which covered western Connemara, fared when they faced the enormous burden of famine relief in late 1847. There's no question that Connemara and Clifton were always going to be hard hit by the Great Famine. And when the Quaker, Joseph Crossfield, reached the region in 1847, he found western Connemara in dire straits. He explained the situation. Hitherto, the people have lived upon potatoes. From the proceeds of their oats and livestock, they have paid their rent, and with what little surplus there might be, bought their clothes and furniture. Now I find their potatoes gone, what scanty crop they had gathered and eaten up with the oats. The spread of the famine plague is rapidly levelling all localities. In short, the population of this barony must die or be kept alive by either public or private relief. Through the summer of 1847, Clifton was serviced by soup kitchens feeding around 15,000 people until this crucial lifeline was shut down in September 1847 in line with the new British government plan, which was to essentially extricate the government from the situation. After the closure of the soup kitchens, conditions in Clifton and the wider western Connemara region were deplorable. By November 9th, officials were reporting an increase in famine-related disease something entirely predictable. These diseases had, after all, raged through Dublin through the preceding summer. The death toll in Clifton was catastrophic. The Quaker, James Hack Chuke, who travelled to the west of Ireland late in 1847, reported that 140 dead bodies lined the roadside into Clifton, awaiting burial. 
In November, the somewhat extraordinary figure of 75% of the town's population had fallen ill, many with typhus, intestinal problems and anasarca, swellings that can be caused by hunger. In terms of the new famine relief policy devised by Charles Wood, Charles Trevelyan and the British government, the Poor Law Union of Clifton was the body that was now in charge of the 33,000 people that lived in the territory it covered. The task facing this Poor Law Union was gargantuan, given that within six months around half of these people would be dependent on them for their very survival. However, it's hard to envisage an organisation less suited to the challenges that lay ahead. The Board of Guardians, who oversaw the running of Clifton Poor Law Union, was not compromised of people with experience in famine relief, but instead it was a volunteer group from people who lived in the Union. They were not paid for their work and most of the members had a limited interest in the day-to-day activities of the Poor Law Union. For many, their primary concern was the poor rate, the local tax which funded its activities. They wanted to keep it as low as possible, so from the outset you have this strange situation with those in charge of famine relief diametrically opposed to spending large amounts of money on famine relief because they were ratepayers who had to fund it in the first place. In fact, the only member of the Board of Guardians of Clifton Poor Law Union who displayed genuine concern for the poor seems to have been the local landlord Hyacinth Darcy, the son and heir of the man who founded the town. By Christmas 1847, the Poor Law Union was strapped for cash and deeply in debt. Conditions in the local workhouse which it operated were frightful. On Christmas Day, John Dean, one of the 22 temporary inspectors created by Trevelyan during his visit to Dublin, wrote a report on the conditions in Clifton Workhouse to the Poor Law Commissioners. It revealed a shocking situation. Built to house 300 people, by Christmas it was chronically overcrowded with 700 people in the institution. Many of those inside the workhouse were carrying disease. This was an inevitable result of the closure of the temporary fever hospitals the government had operated earlier in the year. Once these were gone, the sick had no option but to turn to the workhouse which had a resident doctor. Of the conditions inside the building, Dean informed the poor law commissioners. The inmates of the house are crowded together in a day room, breathing a tainted atmosphere. There is an insufficient supply of bedding and clothing. The rain pours down through ventilating turrets into the rooms, and the paupers are thus subjected to increased liability of infection. Pestilence rages amongst the wretched inmates. On visiting the house a few days ago, I was disgusted at learning that the dormitories, particularly those appropriated for children, are not supplied with night buckets. I regret to state that Dr. Bodkin's brother, who accompanied him to the workhouse hospital about a week since, died today of malignant typhus fever. It should come as no surprise that the death rate inside the building soared in early 1848. In the last week of January and the first week of February, 41 people died in the hospital attached to the workhouse. Bad as this was, there were numerous hidden deaths in the transfer of famine relief to the poor law system. A few weeks before Christmas, John Dean had informed the poor law commissioners that the workhouse was seriously overcrowded. To sort out the problem, they took a terrible decision, although it should be said... This measure had been set down by the government when they adjusted the poor law system to handle famine relief. On November 26, 1847, they wrote to Dean telling him to remove, essentially evict, widows, orphans and the sick 
some of the most vulnerable in society from the workhouse to create space. From this point on, these people would receive food rations outside the workhouse, but they would no longer live in it. Now, the logic... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Behind what seems like a strange move is the obsession planners had with the idea that the poor were idlers and would not work but instead live off the largesse of famine relief if they could, essentially the age-old myth of welfare scroungers. In Ireland in 1847 this had lethal consequences. The logic was strange. They trusted widows, orphans and the infirmed who they deemed to be genuine cases and they could trust to feed them outside the workhouse. When they left the workhouse their places were given to what were called able-bodied paupers who, although able to work, could not find a job and were destitute and in need of relief. The officials wanted these people inside the workhouse because they viewed them with suspicion and felt only those genuinely unable to find a job would subject themselves to the harsh regime of the workhouse. This, of course, was somewhat ludicrous in Clifton in late 1847, where there was no work of any kind to be found. So it was that 200 of these desperate people the old, the orphaned and widows, were cast out of the workhouse in late 1847. Many of them had nowhere to go. 
they had given up their homes to prove their destitution. They were not allowed to have more than a quarter acre of land, or else they wouldn't be considered destitute, and in the wintry conditions of 1847, they were now homeless. Some started to exchange their meagre food rations for space in tenements in Clifton. Others moved into caves near the town. How many of these people died is unknown, but Christmas came and went for these people with no festive cheer. Dire as the situation was in Clifton, John Dean would not yet call for the British government to intervene. In any case, it would have been useless. Even though Clifton was one of the distressed unions where the British government accepted they would at some point have to intervene, they wanted far more of the poor rate taxes collected first. However, this was akin to getting blood from a stone in Clifton and the continued collection inflicted terrible hardships on people. All those who owned or rented a farm valued at more than £4 were liable to pay the tax while landlords paid the rates for farms smaller than this. In Clifton, though, almost no one had money. By 1848, the founders of the town, the Darcy family, one of the two major landlords in the region, were on the verge of bankruptcy and their estate would soon be in receivership. The other major landlords, the Martin family, were not in a much better position. Further down the economic ladder, smaller farmers were scarcely surviving. After three failed harvests, they had no money and many of them were on the verge of destitution themselves. The parish priest of Clifton, Peter Fitzmaurice, summarised the impossible financial position facing Clifton Poor Law Union. There are 7,000 in need of relief. How can a few hundred struggling tenants and shopkeepers with a few bankrupt landlords meet the rate necessary for their support? In this situation, the police were struggling to protect the tax collectors who were increasingly under attack. For example, in January 1848, several policemen, including William Wilkes, the head constable in Clifton, were injured when defending a rate collector, John Lydon. After Lydon seized three cows, a riot broke out when a crowd attacked him and his police escort. When head constable William Wilkes ordered his men to open fire on the crowd, the people refused to move, stating they would sooner die than have their cattle taken. This statement was a sign of the increasing desperation facing many around Clifton. It was no exaggeration that if cattle were taken, these people would very possibly die. For some, the pressures they faced were too great. James Ward of Emla Moor, to the south of Clifton, committed suicide from the stress and pressure of paying the poor rate. He had little money after he had loaned hundreds to poor people in the area who could not repay him. The attempt to collect the poor law tax was clearly destroying what was left of the local economy. A North Tipperary newspaper explained the dangers of this policy, which was affecting communities across the entire island. Unless the government aids the country in this crisis and gives a helping hand to extricate her out of the difficulties into which she has emerged, it will be frightful to contemplate the universal devastation. By early 1848, wider society in Clifton was in a vicious circle, as the starving were increasingly robbing what they could to survive, and this often meant taking from the taxpayers who were supposed to be funding the Poor Law Union. Hyacinth Darcy revealed the brutal nature of life. The magistrates are in a most painful position, and when destitute persons charged with larcenies are brought before them, they are obliged to commit them for the protections of persons not much better off, and such as are barely able to pay the poor rate. The complete failure of the system was eventually acknowledged by John Dean in February when he informed the poor law commissioners. Several of the ratepayers who have contributed to the rate are themselves fit subjects for outdoor relief and will shortly have to be relieved. 
The greater part of the property in this district is mortgaged, and in many instances to its full value. Dean had reached the conclusion that there was no way they could continue without government aid. On February the 9th, having done everything to collect rates, Dean invoked the clause that allowed Clifton receive government aid. I think the time has come when relief should be given to this union in aid of rates. The distress is too great to be met without assistance. The reality was that this moment had come months too late. The poor rate collectors had stripped an impoverished land bare of its remaining wealth. The reality was the non-functioning poor law union should never have been left on its own, a move that cost hundreds, perhaps thousands of lives in Clifton alone. However, government intervention didn't mean an end to the crisis in Clifton. Indeed, on February the 21st, 1848, the problems facing the region were assessed and it was estimated that that year of 1848 was going to be as bad as 1847 and based on this, the poor law union would be feeding 15,000 people on a regular basis. In the following months, the Poor Law Commissioners in Dublin sourced money from the British government and the British Association, a charity which I will be looking at in the coming show, but it was never more than just enough to keep the people alive. The conditions remained horrific. Misery and deprivation that was daily life continued and all too often many individuals were subjected to unspeakable horrors. To explain the utter failure of the government policy, next I'm going to focus on one of the most notorious incidents from the entire famine that took place in Clifton. But first, I think we all need a well-deserved breather and I want to give you some info about an upcoming live podcast in Dublin. So lots of you will be aware that the Dublin Podcast Festival is happening around the time this show is released. So it's kicking off on September the 26th and lasts until October 16th. There are dozens of really cool shows on over the next three weeks and I'm delighted to be doing a live podcast myself in a double bill with Mother Folklore. This is on October the 10th in the Sugar Club, Leeson Street in Dublin and promises to be a really great night. I'm going to be talking about lots of stuff they never taught you in school about the Great Famine. Now you can get tickets to this at ticketmaster.ie. That's ticketmaster.ie. Hopefully I'll see lots of you there on October 10th. As we have heard, in early 1848, robberies and thefts in the Clifton area were on the increase. Now these were acts of sheer desperation. For example, on February the 3rd, a foal belonging to Anne Keneally in Derry Gimla went missing. It later transpired that Michael Ward and Ellen Riley, described as wretched-looking creatures, were seen chasing the foal and subsequently killing it. This instance of eating animals, such as horses, previously considered beneath human consumption, was becoming increasingly common. People were also eating other meat considered taboo, such as donkeys and dogs. It was clear Starvation was driving people to their wits' end. Other examples of the horrors of life in Clifton by early 1848 included a pile of six bodies which were left unburied in the district of Roundstone. Eventually, and somewhat inevitably, a dog stripped the flesh off one of the bodies, the corpse of an old man. Amid such horrors, there was only one taboo left to be broken, and this unspeakable threshold was crossed in the early months of that terrible year of 1848. While it may be tempting to sensationalise the following story, context is all important to understand this horror and what it meant. 
On March the 11th, 1848, Dominic Kerrigan, the keeper of the local jail in Clifton, was disturbed late at night. Now in such troubled times, Kerrigan was undoubtedly alarmed and concerned, but he could never have imagined the horrors that were about to unfold on his doorstep. Opening the door, he was faced by James Cook, who had travelled all the way from Kilkirn, a coastal village 20 miles from Clifton. He had brought two prisoners, a husband and wife, Bartholomew and Honor Flaherty, accused of stealing a calf. The journey from Kilkirn had been a difficult one. The weather that evening was cold and wet. In 1847, the American writer Antoinette Nicholson had travelled a similar route through Connemara, heading to Clifton. And even Nicholson, healthy and well-fed as she was, had to stop on several occasions because, in her words, The wind was so strong in my face that walking was almost impossible. The prisoners... Bartholomew and Honor Flaherty were lying in the back of Cook's cart and had been exposed to the elements during the entire trip, which had lasted hours. They were emaciated. Honor was barely conscious and in a brutal display, James Cook grabbed her, in the words of Dominic Kerrigan, like a dead sheep and hauled her from his cart, dumping her at the door of the prison. Kerrigan, a compassionate man, brought Honor into the constable's day room, but it was too late to revive her and she died. The journey and the terrible treatment were a step too far for her weary and weakened body. Her death brought an end to what had been a horrific struggle of endurance that had been the final months of Honor's life. Later inside Clifton Jail, the keeper Dominic Kerrigan interviewed Bartholomew, her husband, and he revealed the gruesome details of his family's plight. Bartholomew and Honor had four children, Martin, Mary, Pat and Margaret. They were from the small fishing village of Kilkirn, located in the Roundstone district, one of the worst affected areas in the entire Clifton Poor Law Union. Desperate, the Flaherty family had been in Clifton Workhouse before Christmas, but had left by December 9th. After this, they were given outdoor relief in the form of ground maize, which they could cook. However, in the following weeks, the entire family, Bartholomew, Honor and their children, were struck down with disease. Tragically, three of the four children, Martin, Mary and Pat, all perished. Then on March 10th, as we have seen, they stole the calf from James Cook. Cook had caught the family, now reduced to the parents and their only surviving daughter, Margaret, huddled underneath the calf skin in their house. While animal hides are used as blankets, this is only after they have been treated. The smell alone from the untreated, decaying hide would have been overpowering. However, the Flaherty's had seen far worse. In Clifton Jail, Bartholomew told Dominic Kerrigan that before he stole the calf, Honor had been reduced to eating the flesh from the legs of two of her own children who were buried in the back garden of the house. The whole story shocked Kerrigan and an account of the incident reached the Poor Law Commission in Dublin through a letter from John Dean. They demanded an investigation and a team, including a local doctor, was sent to Kilkirn to investigate They went to the rear of the house and sure enough they discovered the bodies of two of the Flaherty children. However, the level of decomposition was too great to confirm Bartholomew's claims of cannibalism. Eager to disprove that a woman in Clifton Poor Law Union had been reduced to cannibalism by hunger, the investigators claimed that it was just a disgusting story and that Bartholomew was lying. They made much of the fact that they found six kilos of ground maize, which amounted to about six days of poor law union rations in the Flaherty house. The investigators claimed this proved the Flahertys had not suffered from a want of food. However, they could have probed further into the matter because this was not the entire story. Firstly, the wider area the Flahertys lived in was gripped by appalling distress around this time. However, we have to look at this issue of the food in the Flaherty's house. 
The nature of this food not only actually lends credibility to the story Bartholomew Flaherty had told, but it also actually has far wider reaching consequences and undermines one of the main reasons Charles Trevelyan had offered to support the whole idea that the famine was coming to an end. And this was that there was plenty of cheap food available in Ireland. It is true that there have been increasing supplies of food, particularly ground maize, or what many of us know as sweet corn, imported from the USA. However, even when ground down into meal, this sweet corn was not suitable for people suffering from intestinal diseases, which follow famine in nearly all cases. Indeed, just two weeks after Bartholomew Flaherty told Dominic Kerrigan the story of Honor's desperate act, a poor law inspector, Dr. Phelan, reported from Clifton, Fever is rife in every house. There is no medical man in the whole division. The population is in utter want without any resource. Many of those I saw, both in their houses and outside, are unable to use Indian meal. The other articles in smaller proportion are fitter for the sick. So from this, I think it seems likely that given the Flaherty's were ill, they couldn't actually eat the food they had access to and were instead collecting it in their house, which must have been an awful experience to be lying starving, disease-ridden, in beds with food around you, but you can't eat it. It would certainly explain why they had so much food in the house. Ultimately, whether Honor Flaherty did eat flesh from her deceased children's feet is something that we can never prove. But on balance, we have to say, it's very possible. If it was false, we would have to ask, why would her husband make up such a claim within hours of Honor's death? And also, it is important to note, this wasn't the only case of cannibalism recorded in the Clifton area during the famine. Just over six months later, a man called Patrick Diamond was stopped by his neighbours from eating a human corpse that had washed ashore north of Clifton near Omi Island. Further to this, a curate from Spiddle, a village around 30 miles east of Kilcairn, would reply to a report of cannibalism saying it had taken place there as well. Cannibalism is deeply unpleasant to think about, but that some people were reduced to this during the Great Famine should not come as any surprise. Indeed, it would be extremely unusual if some of our ancestors hadn't resorted to cannibalism. It is, after all, recorded in most famines. My point in telling you this account is not to relay a macabre, gruesome or sensational story, but rather because this story of the Flaherty's exposed the deep flaws in the British government's strategy that winter. That these people were reduced to this highlights that the free market and the poor law were no match for famine. What was needed was a hands-on approach backed up by the resources of the British government. Now next I want to look at the thorny question of blame and pick apart who was responsible for this situation. In my mind, no matter what way you analyse the situation that unfolded in Clifton, there can be no doubt that the British government are the ones who bear the primary responsibility. There were numerous warning signs that the famine was not and indeed could not come to an end in 1847 without major government intervention. It was clear the poor would struggle to buy food at any price, particularly in the West, where there was no hope of getting employment. Their actions threw huge responsibility onto Clifton Poor Law Union and on scores of other poor law unions across the country who were clearly going to struggle from the outset. Ignorance on behalf of the government was no excuse. By autumn 1847, 
They, at the highest levels, were completely aware of the situation in Ireland. The Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the Earl of Clarendon, had written to the Prime Minister, Lord John Russell, stating bluntly, Ireland cannot be left to her own resources. They are manifestly insufficient. We are not to let the people die of starvation. Russell did not change his policy. This was compounded by local dynamics and Clifton's isolated position was certainly a factor that made distribution of relief more difficult than other parts of Ireland. For example, John Dean in his report on Christmas Day stated, The difficulties I have to meet are inseparable from the locality in which the workhouse is placed in the Union. So distant as it is from towns where the guardians could supply themselves with materials and contractors for executing necessary work. The British government might have been able to use this as an excuse in 1846 perhaps when they were adjusting to the first year of major intervention but by 1848 for a country that boasted the greatest navy in the world. Isolated parts of Ireland which is ultimately a small island beside Britain should have been no obstacle. In any case this is something of a moot point because the British government never intended on feeding people themselves in 1848. Indeed, by giving up all power to private merchants in such a remote place as Clifton, they were making the situation far worse. The isolated nature of the town naturally gave traders there a commanding position to charge high prices. When doctors recommended giving rations of rice to help stop the spread of dysentery, the poor law union could not afford it. This was because the market was allowed to operate freely in the town and Clifton merchants were demanding 75% above the asking price for rice. The government also failed to recognise or did not want to acknowledge the complete unsuitability of the Irish poor law system for famine relief. Among its numerous problems, it was an overly centralised body. The powerful poor law commissioners in Dublin maintained a large degree of control over the day-to-day activities and this matched with an inflexibility when it came to regulations undoubtedly cost lives. Clifton officials were frequently prevented from responding to local problems with local solutions because they had to contact officials in Dublin, who then in turn insisted the regulations would be followed to the letter of the law. For example, the guardians in Clifton at one point wanted to pay for food with cash rather than pay on account. Their reasons were sensible. Merchants would sell food cheaper for cash. Despite the fact this would have seen the poor law union's limited resources stretch further, this request was refused as it was against regulations. The necessity of having to contact Dublin from such an isolated place as Clifton put considerable delays on the activities of the poor law officials, which were often literally matters of life and death. This was in an era before telephones or even telegrams, so a letter from Dublin took a minimum of two days to reach the capital. While poor law officials usually drafted their response on the third day, it would take another further two days for the letter to travel back, meaning correspondence took five days to reach Clifton. On some occasions it could be longer. As I said, some of the issues being discussed in these letters was extremely important. For example, the request for permission to expand their relief programmes given the appalling conditions in early 1848 took a week to arrive back. Surely it would have made much more sense to empower officials in Connemara or at least Galway with some of these decisions. We have to ask, were there alternatives to this situation in Connemara? And in my mind, the answer to this is unquestionably yes. Had the British government directly intervened very early, imported food into the region and kept the soup kitchens running, this would undoubtedly have alleviated the worst effects of the crisis. 
Had they also not closed the fever hospitals they operated, this would have helped to stay the spread of disease. Further to this, they made no preparations to handle the very predictable epidemics of late 1847 and early 1848. In fact, when officials in Clifton asked the poor law commissioners to help them by giving blankets, they were told by officials in Dublin they had no extra supplies of bedding or clothing. While the government does bear the ultimate responsibility, this doesn't absolve everyone else from the calamity of 1847 to 1848. For example, the obsession at all levels with corruption and the idea that the poor were ultimately trying to scam the system of famine relief was a major impediment. This was often petty and really trivial. For example, officials in Clifton wrote to the poor law commissioners in Dublin with some of the problems they faced with so-called corruption. Their first example was a general case which, if anything, only revealed the desperation in the area, but through middle-class Victorian eyes, this was seen as abusing the system. In their account, they said of this case, The widow with two or more children in some instances has got her rations in one electoral division and then attempted to obtain them in another. In other instances, the maiden name is used in one depot and the husband's name in another. In fact, every conceivable trick is practised to obtain an increase of food. When they cited an actual specific case of corruption, it was extremely minor and certainly did not warrant the amount of energy expended on it. This case had seen an overseer, Terence Corbett, turn up for work drunk and was prone to taking a bit of meal home for himself every evening. This prompted a big investigation, pages of communication between Clifton and Dublin and you're left wondering, surely there were some more pressing matters that they could have been focusing their energies on. We cannot finish without talking about the wealthy of Clifton, primarily the two big landowning families, the Darcys who had founded the town and owned around 12,000 acres and the Martins who were by far the largest landowners in western Connemara with around 200,000 acres of land between Clifton and Galway. Their reactions to the famine are complex and the traditional view that Irish landlords were to a fault despicable people doesn't really hold water. As individuals, they could be very humane people. Hyacinth Darcy diligently worked on the local board of guardians through late 1847 when most shirked their responsibilities and he did his best to keep the poor law functioning in late 1847. This was dangerous work. Two doctors working in Clifton Workhouse died within a few months of each other, one on Christmas Day 1847 and the other a few months later in early 1848. That said, when the Poor Law Union wanted to buy land near the workhouse to grow vegetables, Darcy tried to exact a very high price for that land. Now the other major landlords in the area, the Martin family, paid heavily for their famine relief efforts. In 1847, Thomas Martin, the owner of the 200,000 acre estate, died after contracting fever when helping his tenants. His final words were supposedly, My God, what will become of my people? These words, while perhaps coming from a good place, displayed the paternalistic attitude landlords had toward their tenants. They viewed themselves as father-like figures who needed to take care of their childlike tenants. And as children, they could not be entirely trusted, an idea that pervaded throughout all famine relief and the entire poor law system. While individual landlords acted with humanity, as a class, they responded despicably during the famine. Generally speaking, they resisted all attempts to pay for famine relief, and it was their representatives in the British Parliament who had brought forward the legislation to set the test of destitution at a quarter acre of land, a move that cost countless lives. Now before I conclude, 
I think it is important to say that the situation Clifton faced was by no means as severe all across Ireland. Indeed, in 1848, the famine did begin to ease in some parts, particularly where work was available. However, the story of Clifton certainly highlights a situation that was prevalent across the West and in parts of the Midlands and was certainly affecting millions to varying degrees. The events that took place in Clifton through the winter of 1847-48 to unquestionably proved the famine was not over and that the actions of the British government to withdraw from famine relief had had terrible consequences. It also illustrated how the poor law was totally inadequate for famine relief. Its financing could only function in wealthy areas where people could pay poor rates, which, by 1848, obviously correlated with areas where the famine was not as serious. In the next show, we will be looking at generosity and charity, and focusing in on what is a forgotten hero from the Great Famine. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to my new show, This Week in Irish History, which is in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, Sloan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.